This is a part three of the testimony that Paul gives pointing us to the glory and the sovereignty and the deity of Christ. He's writing to a, a letter to a church he's never been to, to a group of people he's never met. Um, we don't know that he ever did meet these people, um, but he's aware of what's going on there, that the deity of Christ is being compared to angels and um, the enlightenment, um, which is what we know today as the Illuminati and, and all of these spiritual, mysterious forms of worship that are going on in Colossae. Um, and he's addressing those things. And in chapter 1, he takes a moment to explain and to stress the authority, the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. We'll read verses 15 through 18 and then begin. Paul writes, The Son is the, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we take another look at the authority of your Son in your plan, the, the directives of you, Father, that your Son and his name and his authority would be elevated higher than all names, including your own, Father, that at his name every knee would bow and every tongue confess, and that his authority and his spoken word all would be accomplished in your plan. Help us to grasp that at a deeper level today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have in these verses today, we will see we're, we're reading a letter that is written to Gentiles, that is written to a place in what is modern-day Turkey um, that is in the area of Laodicea, which we see a letter to in Revelation chapter 3. And... We see the, the letter of Ephesus or the letter of the Ephesians being sent to Laodicea, this important area, this spiritual, mystical place um, that is Colossae. And Paul is affirming the authority of Christ, that he's not just an option, that he's not just the best, that he's not just um, something to consider. But he is telling them in Colossae what he is telling us in Mendota that every authority, every power, everything in heaven, everything on earth, everything except God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are in existence and in motion and held together by the Son of God. And he wants them to understand that as we read on to verse 19. For God was pleased, God the Father was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself to himself all things, whether things in earth and, or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So the reason that he is all authority, the reason that he is the creator, the reason that he is the sustainer, the reason he is the sacrifice that purchased it back when Adam and Eve gave it away is because it is the Father's will, it is the Father's plan that everything on earth and beneath the earth, everything in heaven and in the heavenly realms would be reconciled to the Father through the Son. So as Jerem and I were talking about this beginning to end story of this guardian cherub who is fallen and becomes Satan, at the midpoint of the tribulation, his access to heaven ends. Every demon, everything evil, everything that can access heaven today ends at the midpoint of the tribulation. And I don't think we realize how significant that is. That heaven at the midpoint of the tribulation is reconciled to God. So 
when we read of Satan being cast out, we read in Revelation 11 that, 11 that the kingdom of men has become the kingdom of our God. So thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth is whenever God moves and acts on this planet in accordance with how he acts in heaven. Thy kingdom come fully in heaven is when through the reconciliation of the blood of the Son of God, heaven becomes perfect. And that is a casting out of Satan and his followers. Turn to chapter 2. We will study this in the coming weeks, but he is still building on this in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Again, he is speaking to a church that has all of these mystical options pointing out that there is really only one. So he says in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. So he's explaining to them there, anyone that has another opinion, another option, another idea, another authority, see to it that no one takes you captive. If your conversation about why you do what you do in a religious realm doesn't begin with and conclude with Christ, stop. It is not of God. So Paul is explaining this to them. We're going to look, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. We're starting with Galatians because it is Paul's starting point. It is Paul's first letter and he's dealing with opposition as he is writing this letter. And he wants us to understand that Paul isn't significant to you. As I have said before, there needed to be a Paul. There needed to be a human being who would once becoming a living sacrifice never turn back. But it's never ever about Paul. Paul wants us to know he wanted Peter, Andrew, James, and John to know from the start that I'm not someone coming up with a new way. I'm not someone who is creatively giving you the gospel that it is Jesus Christ speaking in my ear through my hand to paper and quill that is the authority of Christ coming through me. So Paul is explaining and defending himself. He just starts by um, describing himself in verse 1, an apostle sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. We drop down in this letter to verse 11 and we just see a couple verses. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So Paul is explaining later in this chapter that he spends three years following his salvation one-on-one -on -one with Jesus Christ. The things that he is writing to the people in Colossae, the things that he is writing to the people here in Galatians, a few miles east of where Colossae is, they're not Paul. They're not good ideas. They're not good training that he has had. He is writing down what came from the mouth of Christ. And that's what we're looking at as we go through Paul's letters, that it is direct revelation. John begins revelation. The revelation from Jesus Christ. Paul begins his letters the same way. Turn to Romans chapter 1. What we did a few weeks ago is we looked at primarily Isaiah and the Psalms and Moses um, writing about the authority of Jesus Christ and the names of Christ, each of which is an adjective and an elevation to the highest place of this individual Jesus Christ. So in the beginning, Jesus Christ 
created the heavens and the earth. So in Hebrew, Elohim Eloftav, the, the triune God and the individual God, the first and the last. That's what's literally written in the Hebrew is that the Trinity, by God's Son, said, let there be light. So from the beginning to the end, we looked last week at the Gospel of John and 1 John and Revelation, where John and John 1 takes us from John 1.1 to Genesis 1.1. And then he writes 1 John and takes us from 1 John 1.1 to John 1.1. And then in Revelation 1.1, he takes us to God's plan of the future. And he describes, as only John does, that this I am, this ego eimi, is all-existent, all-authority, self-contained, Son of God, sovereign. And John takes it upon himself to use that term over and over again, to use a title, Amy, which is what Christ said to Moses from the bush. Hayah in Hebrew, I am, is Amy in the Greek. Jesus makes clear to us in Matthew 22, verse 32, that it's the exact same and that it is him. So today we're going to look at letters that Paul, his servant chosen to bring the gospel to the world, says to Gentile churches, overseers, and what he says to Jewish churches, all in the same heading under Christ. So as he begins writing Romans, he says, Paul, a servant. He is a servant. Um, Jesus tells us himself that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And that if we follow him, we will do the same. So Paul begins Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. He would be the writer of the gospel that we know as the finished work of Christ. Verse 2, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, all the way back to Genesis, regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in Power, that's that Greek word dynamis, supernatural, miraculous, Holy Spirit, power, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him, Paul says, we, the apostles, received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith. Faith without obedience is dead the Bible tells us, for his name's sake, verse 6, and you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Christ. So Jesus says in John 12, 26, that my servant will be where I am. We are reading, we have already read this morning that he is the head of the body, that he is the body, Ephesians chapter 1. He's the head and the authority of the body, Colossians 1. And he says, my servant, John 12, 26, will be where I am. And the one who serves me will be loved by my father, and my father will love them. So the servants of Christ are where he is, and they are under the authority of the father, which he explains in Ephesians. Um, turn to Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll read a little bit of what he wrote to them at the same time that he is writing this letter to the people in Colossae. Ephesians chapter 1, where this offer is being made of resurrection power. So the very power that proved that Christ was who he said he was, the resurrection from the dead, that power, that dynamis, is being offered to us if we will follow Christ. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, 
and His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength He exerted when He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, just like in Colossians, and authority, power, and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So we're reading in Colossians, he is the head, he is the supreme one, he is the authority, all rulers in heaven, on earth, all powers, all dominion, all everything that's been created, and he is the head of the church. Colossians 1.18, he has the supremacy over everything as the head of the church. Same thing in Ephesians 1, describing that the church is actually his body, that we are members of the body of Christ. We are the indwelling place of the Holy Spirit, he explains in Ephesians. And he's explaining that the one who is the head is the body, he's the authority, he's over all. So his authority covers everything. His authority is active where it is responded to. So his cross and sacrifice covers every sin and the forgiveness becomes realized where it is responded to, where he is invited as Lord, where his authority already exists when it is invited into our lives, it becomes active. Um, turn to Philippians chapter 2. So about that resurrection power, Paul says in Romans 6, 5, that if we are associated with, if we're connected to a death that is his, then we will certainly be connected to a resurrection that is his. So in the same way that Christ rose from the dead, we will rise from the dead if, in fact, his power and authority is acknowledged by us. So there's a lot of good in Philippians 2. We're picking it up in verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So Paul says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, in order to have an eternal relationship with God, in order to receive resurrection power, in order to raise from the dead and be eternally with God forever, we must confess with our mouth that he is Lord. So here's God the Father's plan. When he initiates this plan, he says, in my plan, everyone will do that. In my plan, those who do it, when it is their choice, will call me Abba. And those who choose not to still will. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. So at the white throne, all of those people who have said no will say yes. You are the sovereign Lord. You are authority over all. Paul says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ Yeshua Christos, Lord of salvation, anointed prophet, priest, and king, they're going to call him Adonai, Kyrios. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Their confession will be covered in our tears. Because it is only after that time when the rebellious say, yes, you are Lord, that they will be condemned to hell and we will have our tears wiped away after that event. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 
I will be brief in 1 Thessalonians as you're studying through it. But this is the goal of God, the never-changing, immovable goal of God in my life, the number one priority in my life, according to the Bible, in everyone's life. And if we submit to it, it becomes a reality. We become metamorphosed into being like Christ. So in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, in verse 23, Paul writes, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. So just like Romans 8, 28 and 29, we know that he works for the good of those in all things. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, those he knew before creation would say, Yes, Jesus, you are my Lord. He is able to work for their good by what he had planned in advance to do. He had predestined them to be conformed into the image of his Son. So the Son himself, hours before the cross, prays to his Father, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. So the Apostle Paul, years after that, says, here's what God wants to do. He wants to sanctify you soul, spirit, and body through and through. So he wants my spirit to connect to his spirit in a way that says what comes out of your mouth is my reality. When I do that, my soul is fed. When my soul is fed, my feet and my hands move where he wants me to move. And he says that if you will just connect your spirit to his spirit to do that, the one is, who promised it is faithful. He'll make it happen. You will be holy and blameless when Christ returns for you. And he's giving us that promise. Turn to 1 Timothy 3.16 as we look at the letters written to overseers and pastors where the authority of Christ is continually elevated. We'll just look at a few verses. 1 Timothy 3.16 Paul writes, Beyond all question, from which true godliness springs is great. I didn't read that right. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached in the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up to glory. That's the hope of glory. That he says in chapter 1, is Christ in you? The one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come. This is where all godliness springs from. So we remember your, your work produced by your faith, your labor prompted by your love, and your perseverance prompted by your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what godliness springs out of. The hope of Jesus Christ, the certainty of Jesus Christ, the finished work of Christ. So he gives us this order here. He appeared in the flesh. Um, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Luke tells us the most clearly that, that the Holy Spirit came down in his baptism and that from that point forward he would, he would do miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. He would, as we saw in Sunday school this morning, he would face the Pharisees and they'd say, by Beelzebub you're casting out demons. And he says, how does Satan cast out Satan? He says, if I cast them out by Beelzebub, who do you cast them out by? Silence. And then he says, but if I cast them out by the finger of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. And... It is explained to us that this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is saying that the Son of Almighty God does things any other way than by the power of God. So he is vindicated, Paul says, by the Spirit, was seen by angels, and we see many pictures of this, and especially in his glorification when he is lifted up in Acts chapter 1 and the angels appear and say, what are you looking up here for? He told you he was leaving. He'll be back. 
So he was seen by the angels as the resurrected Messiah. And we witnessed that as human beings. He was preached among the nations. This would include the Apostle Paul. He was believed on in the world in everything from a slave to a prostitute to a governor to a um, priest to a Pharisee to a Sadducee. People from everywhere believed on him in the world and he was taken up to glory and it was witnessed that he was taken up to glory. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4 as Paul is clearly describing 2023 even more clearly than he is describing Timothy's future as he writes to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For a time will come, for a time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers, a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. So Paul gives these high, elevated views of Christ. He is saying in the reality, verse 1, that Jesus Christ in the presence of God who will judge the living and the dead and in view of the fact that of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. And he's saying, Timothy, I know this because God has told me that in the last days as we move forward in time, people will go from what does God have to say about this to what do I say about this? And they will go from what does, what does God have to say to what preacher says what I want to hear? What preacher says to me that you know what, God is pleased with the way you are. Just wait and he will come back for you. And what preacher says that he wants to change you to be like Christ? Paul says it will move closer and closer and closer to, I will find a preacher that tells me what I want to hear. Turn to Titus chapter 2 as he writes a pastoral letter to him. In chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. What a wonderful three-letter word, all. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory, and I love this title, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us from, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Fixing our eyes on him, Paul says, the one is faithful will do it. He will sanctify you. He will teach you to say no to ungodliness. He will make you blameless and holy in this present age. The promises that keep coming, Paul says in Galatians 6, 14, may I never boast except in the cross of Christ, who through the cross, Paul died to the world and the world died to him. That's all I have to say, Paul says. What's your personal testimony, Paul? Through the cross of Jesus Christ, I died to the world, and the world died to me, period. That's Paul's testimony. Um, so in Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me. Now go and make disciples. He is coming soon, as we have read in 2 Timothy 4. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. As he is writing to churchgoers. Um, but Hebrews is written to Jewish churchgoers. 
So they don't have a different God, they don't have a different form of worship, but they have a different struggle. Our struggle is, what is a God? Who is a God? Where does a God come from as a Gentile in our history? A Jewish person is, well, wait a minute, we have Abraham, we have Moses, we have Yahweh. Who is this Jesus person? Well, these are people who chose to follow him, chose to surrender, and Paul is the theologian who explains how Moses, David, Isaiah wrote about this person that died on the cross that you're aware of. So in Hebrews, he is writing to Jews and he is explaining to them the authority of Almighty Son of God. Beginning in verse 1, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. So coincidentally, I watched a movie last night, and I'm not standing on the beliefs of a movie, but it was an extremely well-written movie. It, the name of the movie is Time Changer, I believe. Um, and it was written decades ago, which is probably why it is so accurate. Um, but it is built on the beginning of this movie in 1890 where they have a grace seminary that is putting forth commentaries on the Word of God. And one of the scholars is putting forth his commentary and they have to have a unanimous agreement that it clearly and effectively represents the Word of God. And he reads this one line that says that we will take forth the moral principles of God's word into the world. And all of the scholars agree except one. And he says, no, you have to take God's word spoken by God into the world. And they both sound like the same thing. But he's making the point that they use, and I don't believe in time travel, but what they do for the purpose of the movie is they travel forward into time and they see the world that we're living in. And more than what morals are good and morals are bad has been lost, Christ has been lost. The person, the moral agent, the authority, the Son of God. So the point of the movie is that unless you say, thus saith the Lord, then it becomes good ideas. And I've heard preachers use exactly those words, that the principles that God gives us are good ideas. I remember Billy Graham um, in Templeton, I can't remember his first name, was the mentor and leader to Billy Graham, and one day he says to Billy, I don't believe it's true. And he's laying on his deathbed with Lee Strobel at his side, pleading with him to believe that it's true. And Billy was shook, didn't know what to do, and went up on a mountain in North Carolina and said, God, I'm not coming down from this mountain unless you tell me that this is your word. And if you've ever heard a Billy Graham sermon, you've heard him say, the Bible says, the Bible says, Jesus says, the Lord says. And the point of the movie is that as we've gone forward in time, Christ has been taken out of everything. Um, I can remember Charles Stanley's son, Andy, reading some of the things as, as he was coming into question. He, he made statements like, we shouldn't say that we are Christians. And we shouldn't say, Jesus said. Because that will offend some people. But when you take Jesus away, you become your own authority. You become your own ideas. You become your own thoughts. So Paul says in verse 2 of Hebrews 1, In the last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. So he said that God the Father's plan is that the creator of the universe would be the appointed heir of all things, the voice of heaven. So Almighty Father, Almighty Son, Almighty Spirit, the word of God comes to creation 
through the Son of God. And this is one of the rare places where we see God the Father speaking throughout this chapter as we move forward in it. First of all, verse 3, the Son is the radiance. So we, we read that He is exactly like the Father, that He is divine in every way, and that all the fullness of heaven and deity and authority, that it was God's will, Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10, that all of that be recognized as in the Son. So here he says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the glory, the brilliance, the, the visibly indescribable God. He is the radiance of God. He is full in every way. Um, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. So we read as He was writing to Gentiles that everything was created by Him, for Him, and through Him, and in Him all things hold together. And we learn in Hebrews chapter 1 that He holds it together by His voice, by His words. So in the beginning God said, let there be light, that same word which one day will come again to judge the world is sustaining all things by the word of God. What is very undermined word of God today is what sustains all things. Reading on. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. They are struggling with angels and the worship of spirits and things like that as he writes the letter to the church in Colossae. Verse 5, now Paul is, is writing to a Jewish audience. He is writing to Jews who are trying their best to reconcile how what David and Moses wrote and to understand. So Jesus, in Luke chapter 24, he appears amongst the apostles coming through the wall, and they're terrified. And at one point, he says, in about probably verse 45, he says, these are the things that I told you when I was still with you, that everything must be fulfilled that was written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he says, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer, he will raise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations. Beginning at Jerusalem, you, he says to them, are my witnesses of these things. So that's what he is explaining and he's explaining to the Jews here by going to what David said and going to what Moses said. Verse 5, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. So in Psalm 2, um, he is coronating his son, Jesus Christ, as David is coronating his son, Solomon, as a picture of Christ. And he says to them, he says to his son, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask me Son of God, and I will make the nations your inheritance. What did we just read? He is the heir of all things appointed by the Father. So he says, you will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. He is saying, you will come, you will judge, you will reconcile, and I so ordain it. Or again, reading on, he says, I will be his father and he will be my son. That takes us into 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 14. So when we read Psalm 2, we read Psalm 72, and we read Psalm 110, which Justine read, these coronation psalms are written out of 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God explains to David that the ruler of all will come from your throne. He will descend from you. He will be the exalted one. He will be all authority. And David is overwhelmed and he writes those psalms. Reading on verse 6. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So he takes that from Psalm 97. I knew the first half of the psalm because of a Michael W. Smith song, Let It Rain, 
when he, he quotes the first half of that, but the second half of it begins, let all those who worship images be put to shame, those who boast in idols, worship him, all you gods, the psalmist writes. And that's what is talked about here. That's what Paul is saying here, that when he said worship him, it would have been worthy of the Father, worthy of the Holy Spirit, but he's saying worship my son, all you angels. So a command taken from the Apostle Paul from Psalm 97 and verse 7. Verse 7 in Hebrews 1, in speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. So in Psalm 104, the psalmist is writing about the angels were created to serve Christ. And when they fell, that war was brought about. But verse 8, about the Son, he says, this is God the Father speaking of God the Son. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Psalm 45, 6. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Psalm 45, verse 7. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord Kyrios, you laid the foundations of the earth. This is God the Father speaking to God the Son in Psalm 102 and verse 25. And the heavens are the work of your hands speaking to his son. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. And he is talking from Psalm 102 and verse 26. Peter talks of this in 2 Peter 3.10. Verse 12, you will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end. Psalm 102, verse 27. Verse 13, this is what Justine opened us with. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? And the salvation, the reason it says will inherit is because it looks to the new heaven and the new earth the eternity spent with God. Chapter 2 and verse 1. Because of all this, be, the reality that it's true, and he is speaking to us, but he is specifically speaking to Jewish followers of Jesus Christ. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have seen, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels, talking about Moses on Mount Sinai, was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we ex escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Verse 5. It is not to angels that, is, that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but where there, excuse me, but there is a place where someone has testified, quoting Psalm 8 and verse 4, What is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? This is interesting here because Paul is quoting the Septuagint. So um, in the Hebrew, what is mankind, or Hebrew to English, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? There's something that is in that word human beings that refers to the Son of Man. So it is a reality that he created us lower than the angels and crowned us with glory and honor. So Paul explains that in 1 Corinthians 11 that in the order of God, there is the Father, there is the Son, there is man, there is woman, and the women are above angels. 
in his order. So he created us lower than the angels and then raised us up. But there is also in that picture what Paul is telling us here that the focus of that verse is actually the Son of Man. So what is mankind that you are mindful of them? A Son of Man that you care for Him. Quoting the Septuagint, verse 7. You made them, human beings, a little lower than the angels. Psalm 8, verse 5. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. So he calls human beings into creation and he creates them and he speaks to Adam and Eve that you are to rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every creature that moves along the ground. And we learn that they took that authority given to them and they gave it to Satan. And Jesus, John explains in John chapter 8, had to purchase it back. And he has done that. So verse 8 you put everything under their feet. Unfortunately, we gave it back to Satan. Satan takes Jesus into the wilderness to tempt him for 40 days, and he says to Jesus, if you will just do this, I will give you authority over all the kingdoms of the earth because it has been given to me. And Jesus tells him, worship God and worship him only because he is about to purchase that back. So verse 8 and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at the present time, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, Philippians 2, for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So Paul is saying the plan that was being spoken through David was that we'd be created a little lower than the angels and crowned with glory and honor. We don't see that in 2023. Well, what do we see in 2023? We see what looks like Satan is ruling. It looks like Satan is on his throne. It looks like God has forgotten about us. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he says that we don't wage war the way the world does. He says that we demolish every argument and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought and we make it obedient to Christ and his word. So Paul's teaching us here, we do see Jesus, verse 9, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned in glory and honor because he suffered death so that by grace, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Every lost person, every saved person, every person, period. Jesus decided before creation, I will taste death for you. I, from my place of authority and sovereignty and radiance, will taste death for you. And I want you to know that no matter what it looks like, no matter what it seems like, I'm sovereign, I'm in control, and I'm coming back. So in verse 10, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. We read in Sunday school this morning that Jesus is in this fierce argument with the Pharisees and in the middle of this, his non-believing brothers and his mother come up and say, hey, get a message through the crowd there. We want to talk to Jesus. And it's not a good situation. His brothers want him dead by this time. And finally a woman says, um, blessed is the woman who gave you birth. And someone else says to Jesus, hey, your mother and your brothers are here. And in both cases he says, my mother and my brothers 
for those who hear the word of God and obey it. That would be his brothers one day. It wasn't on that day. So this is something to take captive your thoughts that when things look anything but godly around your life and in your family and what's going on in your world, because he tasted death for you and because you chose to follow him, he is not ashamed to call you his brother, his sister. So a, a quick way to take captive my negative thoughts is Jesus calls me brother. Don't deserve that. Haven't done anything to earn that. But he's not ashamed to do it, so neither am I. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. What's the purpose in all of this? Recognizing the authority of Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, this is the purpose. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is, and this is the only time in the Bible this statement is made, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. So in all of those verses there, he's using master or Lord, but he's saying, whatever you do, give it your best, because it is the Lord Christ. It is Christ, anointed prophet, priest, and king, and it is the master, prophet, priest, and king. So while it seems like I have a boss, I have obligations, I have people to answer to, there's only one. Do everything for him. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for Hebrews 1. When we hear all of these prophets and writers exalting your son, it somehow seems elevated when you choose to speak of your son. When you say to your own son, it was your hands, it is your authority your throne, your rule that we are to be concerned with as human beings. Help us to do that. Help us to bring glory to you, Father, by bringing obedience to your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.